0: comes from Galatians chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had full, when the set time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons god sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out abba father so you are no longer a slave but god's child and since you are his child god has made you also an heir Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come in uh, with the weight of our own lives, the weight of our disappointments, our doubts, our failures, the wounds that we have received from others and through just daily living. And we come in with heavy hearts because of the state of our world and because of the tragedy that we see around us. And Lord, we have been singing, we've been reading passages of great hope, of great promise, and yet it often seems that you are the master of the slow reveal, that we wonder when you will make good on these promises. Father, we think about the events over the weekend in Paris and how difficult that is to see people suffering, people dying, people's lives ripped out from under them. And Lord, we do grieve with them, and it's right to do so, but we also acknowledge that if we're honest, a good part of our anguish and anxiety about those events is that they seem so close, that they seem uh, they did happen in a Western nation. And so, Father, let us take our anxieties to you, and let us not forget the world of suffering that exists outside of the West and outside of the developed world. Uh, We think of What happened in Beirut almost uh, on the same day. And we think about what's going on in Syria and all around the world refugees, widows, orphans who you say you care about. And we pray that you would. We pray that your grace, your comfort would come upon those who are suffering. Father, we pray that here at InTown, as we seek to unravel this mystery of the gospel that you are telling us about in a little bit of a different way this morning in Galatians. That your fatherhood would stand out to us, that we would cling to you, that we would sit underneath your protection, underneath your wing. Lord, let us come to you as children, as needy, with our arms open wide, and would you receive us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Downstairs I have a um, signed photo of Johnny Cash, and I'm a big Johnny Cash fan. I'm also just interested in his life and how complex of a Christian that he was. And in this photo, he is kind of looking out off of, uh, I guess, in the middle distance, and he has this this morose, this sad look in his eyes. He was the, the man in black. He was a man of great pain and anguish. And much of it was revolved around his relationship with his father. You see, his entire family and the entire city that... He grew up in adored his brother Jack. Jack was the sweetest kid. He had this wonderful disposition. He knew everyone in the town. He was very willing to lend a hand, and everyone loved Jack. Everyone loved him, and he was going to be a minister. And the father said, maybe not in so many words, but, "'I'm proud of this boy, John. You should be more like your brother,' And he had these messages of that he was of no account, he was shiftless, he was worthless, he was lazy. And so John never felt this love from his father that he thought Jack enjoyed. And he started idolizing his brother, strangely, but he decided, I want to be more like him. If I'm more like Jack, then I can receive the love of my father and he'll finally accept me. And then if you've seen the movie, uh, Jack gets killed in this terrible accident in a, a sawmill. And Johnny has this ache in his heart that his dad wishes that it was him instead of Jack. And several people who knew Johnny Cash said even in his best moments in the best of times, there was a sadness in his eyes. And a lot of that related to the fact that his father na- never gave him the love and the affection and the approval that he so wanted. Now, many of our stories include dysfunctional relationships with our parents and with perhaps our, our, our dads. Maybe they're not as severe as Johnny Cassius was, or maybe they're worse. And so we're talking about God as a father, and maybe for many of us that's incredibly difficult, it's incredibly problematic. And even if we had the best dad, there's some dysfunction in that relationship. It's never quite the relationship that we wanted it to be, that we're longing for it to be. And we project then our insecurities, our anxieties, our fear upon God as we try to earn his approval, competing much like Johnny did with Jack against others that we perceive as the truly good son or daughter who always does the right thing. Well, Paul tells us some astonishing news in this passage, that the Creator God wants an intimate, loving, and gracious relationship with each of you based upon an unconditional love that the very best fathers only give us a hint at. And in this relationship comes a type of joy and freedom that only comes by knowing that you are a child of God, a son or daughter of the King. He says in verse 6, And because you are sons, and remember as we said last week, this is an ancient way of speaking to all of the congregation in Galatia, not just sons. But he is making a very important point about how inheritance was transferred, and that was usually through, almost always through, the male heir, the firstborn male heir. And so he's making a point of that. He's not excluding anyone by using the language of sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father… God the Father has secured our relationship with Him by sending His Son to redeem and adopt us. And this movement of redemption happens prior to our exhibiting evidence of being sons or daughters, prior to the evidence or the marks of sonship. What do I mean by that? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in another letter, in his letter to the Romans, and he says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, he is telling us that the crucifixion of Jesus was the ultimate depiction of God's love as a father for his wayward children, that he sent his son not because we were good and deserved it, but because we had run away, and he chases after us with his son at the cost of his very life. The ultimate depiction of God's love for you comes not because of your fitness for sonship, but everything to do with God's creative love itself. This relationship starts not with our fitness or our piety or our worthiness, but it comes because of God's love itself, and therefore we can have confidence that what takes it forward what continues it, just as Jesus said in that passage, the gospel passage that we read, it is the Father's love, it is the Father's will, it is His power that continues to move you forward and continues to hold on to you. The Father's self-generated love and affection was set upon you. And God the Father assures of us of this sonship by doing what? by sending the Spirit into our hearts. You see, the the work of Jesus gives us the status as God's children, but the work of the Spirit gives us an experience of that status, an experience of sonship. The work of Jesus in His cross and His resurrection makes you a child, but the Spirit somehow comes and makes you feel like a child. Well, how does this work? This is very important here in this verse, in verse 6, the word for cry out is this Greek word "krazo," which is an intense emotional word. It's the cry of a desperately needy heart. It's the cry of an enslaved soul that cries out to God, a soul in need of rescue. Now, what has Paul been talking about recently in Galatians? And really all through the letter is a certain form of enslavement that we are all as humans under some form of enslavement by which Jesus comes and offers His rescue. And he talked, first of all, about a slavery to the law by which we live by rules rather than promise. We establish ourselves, we differentiate ourselves, we mark ourselves out by our obedience to some external measure. And for those in Galatia, it was the temptation to use the Jewish law to mark themselves out as a badge of honor, as a badge of belonging, and saying, I belong to Jesus because look at my piety, look at my external features, look at who I am. But Paul is telling them very dramatically and controversially that obedience and morality and piety could be a form of slavery itself from which we need rescue. But then he brings in something new here, and we haven't talked about this yet. We've talked about slavery to the law. He says, verse three, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world, or more literally the elements of the cosmos. Well, what could that mean? Well, there's a great deal of discussion, there's scads of articles debating what this means, so I'll spare you a list and I'll just tell you the right interpretation of what this means. So he's saying, remember, you Galatians, you had these teachers that came into Galatia and they were trying to… Convince you that while we're glad that you're Christians, and now that you're converts, now that you've moved out of the worship of these elemental spirits of the world, you should adopt not that practice, but our practice. You should adopt our rules, our customs, our seasons, our way of marking the calendar. We're glad you're Christians and all, but you need to be Christians like us. And these Galatians had moved apparently out of the worship of these elemental spirits of the cosmos, which would likely be in that day air and fire and earth and water and celestial bodies. And so they're saying to move out of that pagan religion into our religion and our way of looking for God. You don't mark time any longer by celestial bodies, but by the Jewish calendar. You no longer worship the things of earth, but the things of God, and therefore you must adopt His law and live according to His law as we do. These were the, the messages that the teachers were bringing into Galatia that Paul is writing to address. And Paul says, not so fast, wait just a minute. He says in verse 8, formally, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You see, when you were pagans, when you were before the gospel came to you, you worshipped these things of the earth, and therefore you were enslaved to the worship of things that weren't actually God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to these weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? But that's not what they're doing, right? They're not going back to worship the elemental forces. They're now adopting the Jewish law and its regulations and its calendar and its circumcision. And what Paul is saying dramatically and in the face of these teachers is that it's exactly the same thing. Both, not one, are enslaving. Do you see? Paul is telling the Galatians that their adopting the Jewish law is no different than when they were pagans worshiping the elements of the world. You see, there is secular pagan imprisonment, and if we think about it in our age, what would those types of forms be? Well, perhaps most readily apparent, materialism, hedonism, uh, political oppression, or political political slavery through oppression or through uh, messianic political systems, whereby we say, if only this could happen, if only this system could be in place, if only this person could be in power, and we become enslaved to those ideas. And it happens on the secular pagan side, but there's also religious slavery. If we update that for our world, it's where we treat Christianity not as a gift, but something to be done. It's a special code of behavior. It's a special system of doctrine, belonging to the right group, practicing the right devotional system. You see, what Paul is saying, and he says, oh, says over and over is that we can be enslaved either by religion or by irreligion. We can be enslaved by our own devotion to morality or our own immorality. Both, not one. But, verse 4, but when the time set had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul is saying, in whatever form it takes, whether it's secular humanism or religious fundamentalism, all of humanity is under enslavement. And Jesus has come to set us free from our enslavement, whatever form it takes. Jesus comes not to tell us what to do, not to enslave us, but to set us free. And those who get that say, Kratzo, Abba, Father. They cry out, Abba, Father. Father. You see, this is the cry of an imprisoned soul. It's the cry of a desperate person wanting liberation from their enslavement. This isn't a discipline. That is something that's ongoing as much as it is a decision. Those who cry out, Abba, Father, that's that conversion experience whereby they are, they are set free. They take hold of this promised redemption, and they say, Abba, Father... You have rescued me. It's not so much generating an intense feeling, it's conversion. It's the cry of someone who's found their true home and found their true father. Thomas Wolfe, the great novelist, says, The deepest search in life, it seems to me, the thing that in one way or another is central to all living is our search for a father. Not just the father of our flesh or the father of our lost youth but an image of strength and wisdom external to our need and superior to our hunger to which the belief and power of our lives can be united notice Abba Father two words why does he repeat it well there's two reasons one is that Paul uses two two terms from different languages he uses it the term for father in both Aramaic and in Greek, to say that there's no privileged status of religion. He didn't become your father because you had this system of devotion, this system of doctrine. He became your father out of his sheer grace. And There's no privileged status of religion. Both pagan and Jew, both male and female, both political slave and free get in by the same door, and that is the grace of God, by His affection, by His love, setting His affection upon you. So that's the first reason he's saying that to these religious teachers who are trying to draw them into the Jewish system of behavior, he's saying you don't have a privileged status. Everyone gets in. You can call Him Father in Aramaic or Greek. And then secondly is that Abba has this slight difference in terms of it's a term of affection. It's a term that Jesus uses in relation to His own Father. It's a term that little children would have used for their parent, their father in Aramaic. And Abba is sort of child talk. It's it's baby talk. It's talking to an intimate person. Relationship, a father who has an intimate relationship with you or with them. What Paul is trying to say, you see, is a child doesn't doubt their sonship unless they have reason to. A child doesn't doubt your love unless you give them reason, unless you cause them to doubt that love. What does a child do? The child just raises his hands raises her hands. The child just assumes that he or she is so important it, that you'll respond to that. They assume that you certainly want to come and do anything for it for them, right? Children just cry out, and they expect, Abba, Father. They expect Abba, Father to respond. They don't say, well, now if you, if you don't mind, if you have a little time... We know, kids don't do that. They grab your arm, they poke you, they tug on you, they, they come when you least expect it, and when maybe as earthly parents we least want them to. But they never come and say, well, now, if you don't mind, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, would you please help me? No, children just expect. They know that you will love them. They think, they t- believe that you can be trusted. And this is what the Spirit is meant to show you about God Himself, that God is that kind of parent that never minds you coming and tugging on His sleeve, that is always available, that will always respond to those open arms and that cry of help, that desperate plea of Dad, I need you. The Father will always reach down and always stoop in response in grace and not retribution. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your own heart, in your own life, in your own devotion? Do you believe that when you fail? Or do you think that God is constantly disappointed with you, that He's constantly waiting for you to get out of line, that maybe I'll pray again, maybe I'll devote myself to Him again once I kind of get things in, in line, once that thing I did way back there is far enough out of my mind and out of God's mind, then I will relate to Him, then I will pray, then I will Read my Bible. Do you believe that he is a loving father who stoops? Well, Paul is speaking on behalf of God, and here's what's at the center of his heart. What God is saying is that you are my son or daughter. If you are in Christ, you are my son and daughter. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you run, I will chase you. If you fall down under weight, I will put you on your feet. If you feel like giving up, know that I will never give up. You belong to me, and I will keep you whatever it takes. Is that how you think about God? Is that what plays in the tapes of your mind as you think about him? Well, how do you get this? How do you get this type of idea, this type of experience? How does the Spirit begin to testify within your spirit in a consistent way? Well, the answer is is very important. And notice in the very beginning of verse 6, because you were sons, because. He's looking back to something that came before. What this means, you can't divorce verses 6 and 7 from 4 and 5. The Spirit comes on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. But when the time set had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that you might receive adoption to sonship. Because of this, cry out. Because of this, you are children. Because of what Jesus has done, you now have a special seat at God's table, and he welcomes you there, and he delights in your being there. Crying out, Abba, Father, is not saying, you know, hit me with an experience. Give me more knowledge. Show me the program. Show me the devotional system. Instead, it's saying, I have been rescued, past tense. It is done. I have received adoption. I have been united to Christ. Now I can live as a son or as a daughter. And I choose today not to live as an orphan but as a child. I choose to live not as a slave but as a son with all the rights and privileges of a male heir with all the rights and privileges of this, in this case, of Jesus himself. You see, when you're adopted into God's family, it's because your brother Jesus has invited you there, and you now are an heir in the same way that he is. Your, insur- your assurance is not an intense feeling, therefore, not an experience, but it's God's object- ob- objective action for you in Christ. The eternal God of the universe thought it was so important to have you that he would actually rip up his own family, that he would separate himself with his son, that he would rip up his own heart, separating his own son from fellowship rather than to lose you. The Spirit comes and convinces you that this is true. The Spirit comes and invites you to believe in that and cry out, Kratso, Abba, Father, to reach up, to ask. There's an amazing story, and I'll end with this, of Alexander the Great, and I'm not sure if it's even true, but maybe it's apocryphal, but one of his generals comes to him one day and says, I need to marry my daughter off to someone, and I need money for a wedding. And Alexander says, well, sure, how much do you need? You're a good general, you've served me well, and I'd, I'd be delighted to help you. It doesn't sound much about like Alexander, but less for the sake of the illustration, go with this. Well, of course, you're a good general, I'll help you with this. And the general asked for an enormous sum, you know, astronomical, something that would just be so presumptive and bad form. And the people were watching, and instead of his face getting really dark and gloomy or mad... Alexander gets this radiant look on his face, and with incredible delight, he says, of course, go ahead, just go to my treasury, take what you need. And the general walks away, and the other people come up to him and said, why did you give him so much money, and why were you delighted? And he said, this man has done me, you see, a great honor by asking for this ridiculous sum He shows that he believes I am fabulously wealthy and incredibly generous. Ask God for ridiculous sums. Ask Him for what you need. Presume upon Him. Go to Him and ask Him to be your Father. Cry out for your needs. It is in fact a great honor to Him and He is incredibly generous and fabulously wealthy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that as we presume upon your grace that it would cause us to live lives of great devotion and holiness. We think if grace is free and extravagant, then we'll do whatever we want to. But Father, help us to believe that that's really not the case, that when we love someone and are loved by them, we want to be with them. We want to do what makes them happy And so, Father, let that be true for us as a church. Let that be true for us as individuals. That as we live in your extravagant household, let it make us humble. Let it cause us to long to invite other people into that house and to show them the wealth, to show them what it means to be a father, a a child of the great King and Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.